Meanwhile, yesterday, of course, we had that Facebook blackout. 3.5 million global users of Facebook locked out for six hours. Even Facebook employees locked out of their computers yesterday. What caused it? Here's a Chester Wisniewski, an so information technology specialist, talking to Global News about that. All the information that's out there appears that Facebook was making some sort of change, and that in the process of making that change, they accidentally disabled this and locked themselves out. Okay, so it sounds like it was an internal problem that the company was not hacked. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Brian Cross. Brian is a public relations and branding expert. He's a managing partner with Elasticity. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Brian? Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. And Brian, you know, you've got this Facebook whistleblower uh, spilling a lot of Facebook secrets here. Then suddenly uh, the Facebook platform shuts down for six hours. Some people were connecting the dots there and saying, were they related? But you don't think they were, right? I don't think they were. Uh, It it definitely makes for a better story. Uh, But I think that uh, all the global commerce that kind of was ground to a halt as well for all those people that log in with their Facebook ID uh, would be a little bit higher collateral damage than uh, Mark Zuckerberg probably would have wanted. Yeah, okay. So maybe, you know, if there's any talk about, well, this is a a bit of a conspiracy theory that maybe they somehow they, they got taken down. It sounds like this was an internal problem and they weren't hacked. Yeah, they yeah. they were doing what we know right now. They were doing some maintenance. It's it sort of a, they, their their server has like a map to where all their other servers were, and whatever they did erased that map, and so they didn't the the the, the servers didn't know where to uh, to go and point people to. So they were kind of lost in the woods there. Yeah, for sure. Well, that was big trouble for Facebook yesterday, but I think maybe even bigger trouble for Mark Zuckerberg is the the whistleblower here, Francis Haugen, getting a lot of attention testifying in front of Congress right now. Let's talk a little bit about that, Brian, and and what she's had to say. Um, Does this hurt Facebook? I mean, this is a company that's faced withering criticism for many years. Does this one cut deeper? Uh, From what we're seeing we're not quite sure. Um, if I were to gather a, a guess here, I'd say probably not. They have been on uh, they've they've been on Capitol Hill before. They've weathered an advertiser's uh, boycott. They've 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 had some some public image uh, black eyes, and yet the advertisers keep pouring money into the Facebook platform. And as long as that keeps happening. Uh, I don't think that they're going to suffer too greatly. Now, their public image is certainly tarnished, uh, and they're certainly opening themselves up to uh, competitors. But right now, uh, there's not a whole lot of talk in the advertising world of pulling dollars away from them as they tried with the uh, ad boycott a few months back. Right. A lot of the criticism that's aimed at Facebook is that they're criticized for allowing too much hate and misinformation and, and, and violent content on on the site. And Facebook has told the public, well, we're taking action on this. We're cracking down on it. But some of the documents that's been released by this whistleblower suggest otherwise. There, there was one study she released that was done very recently that said only 3 to 5% of the hate content on Facebook had been dealt with, with by the company. Less than 1% of the violent and incitement content on Facebook had been dealt with by the company. So, you know, that's some pretty damaging criticism, but... What do you think the biggest risk to Facebook is here? Like you know, like you said, it sounds like their customers will continue advertising there. But what if the government decides to step in and and regulate Facebook? Well, there's been lots of of calls for that. Um, 
the the issue that the Congress is going to have is that if you regulate Facebook, you're, you're, you you can't just regulate one company; you have to regulate an industry. And so there's a lot of other people that be at stake at something from from like that. So you're you're probably looking at uh, some some additional internal changes. But I would say what could happen is the greater threat may not be regulation, but it could be uh, a new upstart, somebody who has has seen uh, Facebook kind of vulnerable where they weren't as vulnerable in the past and potentially uh, building a platform that brings all the users over to the new platform and where the users go, the advertisers go, where the advertisers go, the dollars go. And that, that might be the, the, the biggest glancing blow to, to Facebook. Yeah, and that, that's something that this whistleblower, Frances Haugen, has talked about that. She said that Facebook is worried about competition, and it's one of the reasons that, in her opinion, they haven't adequately taken con- appropriate steps to police some of the more controversial content on, on Facebook because they're worried about losing losing clicks, losing business to you know sites like TikTok. Like she, she had mentioned that Facebook very worried about use, losing younger users to, up, to platforms like TikTok. Does that that doesn't excuse the government's responsibility though to properly in, you know, regulate this company though, right? That is that is correct, and yeah. and you've you've heard calls uh, in the states is uh, and and I the the number uh, the, the the bill number is is escaping me right now, but basically there was there was this this act that was created years ago that was supposed to spur innovation uh, in in the technology sector to to keep uh, the United States a viable competitive source. Yeah. Uh, and what that has sort of been used as now is a shield for these social media companies to say, hey, we don't have to regulate this stuff. We're not mandated to it. So there's a lot of calls for that to, to change and maybe even reclassify them not as a technology company or an innovative technology company, but more along the lines of, you know, news sites, uh, you know, yeah. to where rules of journalism, and other things are going to have to apply. Okay, sp- talking about Facebook's troubles with my guest analyst, Brian Cross. Let me play a little bit of uh, Frances Haugen here, Brian, the Facebook whistleblower. Here, here's part of her interview with 60 Minutes on the weekend and how she says that Facebook is uh, driving extremism. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. The consequences of how Facebook is picking out that content today is it is optimizing for content that gets engagement or reaction. But its own research is showing the content that is hateful, that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Misinformation, angry content yeah. is enticing to people it's and keep, keeps them on the platform. Yes. Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, they'll make less money. Hey, so that's Frances Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower there, talking to 60 Minutes on the weekend, and she's calling for oversight of Facebook. She says the government should force Facebook to open up their internal records. Uh, we'll see if th- something like that happens. But, you know, this also s- starts a, a debate and a conversation, Brian, about free speech in America and, you know, around the world, that some critics of uh, Facebook has lots of critics, but there are also people saying, well, hang on a second, you're talking about you're talking about muzzling people and preventing them from exercising their free speech rights, correct? Correct. Um, and I think you have kind of two points there. Um, the, the, let's, let's start with the free speech part first yeah. um, and, and kind of trying to curtail hate, hate speech and things like that. 
there are billions of users on Facebook's platform. And so to moderate the amount of content that goes through that, they have to use algorithms, bots, uh, and, and, and to look for keywords and things like that. So when you use a bot, when you use an algorithm, it can catch certain things and it can't catch other things. And there's tricks and ways around that. So they're in a constant, any company, this isn't Facebook, this isn't uh, particularly somebody's uh, uh, a mandate. It's just hard to keep up with all that content. And what, what happens is you start getting the rules that you put into place inconsistently applied. And that causes anger on both sides when you can see hypocrisy because of that. So they, they, they have that issue. But then the other issue that they have is in what she was talking about there was unlike TV, radio, newspaper, you know, things like that. Facebook has the ability to see what people are clicking on and to right. push more of that content in front of you. Right. And so if they're taking, you know, because we're, we're all familiar with the term clickbait. We, you know, those in the media, we know a better headline, a more salacious story. We'll, 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 I mean, we always, I come from a PR background. We always told our clients that we can get you on the front page of the New York Times. You just might not like the story. Um, so the, <laughs> journalism definitely has a background in making sure we bring that stuff to the forefront. Facebook just has the ability to control what you see and don't see more than others. And I think that that puts them in that precarious situation. So they've cut those two issues combined causing a lot of this fervor. Okay, this is a fascinating issue and a situation right now with his company. Brian, thanks for coming on with your analysis on it today. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me. Thank All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the federal government's plan for mandatory vaccinations now for federal workers. That was a key promise by Liberal leader Justin Trudeau in the recent federal election. Here's Trudeau talking about this back in August. Have a listen. In order to do that, we will be working uh, with... Uh, the uh, collective bargaining agents with the uh, unions, uh, with uh, the various employers within the, uh, the, uh, the public sphere, uh, the federal sphere, to ensure that we move forward. But the bottom line is, uh, if anyone who doesn't have a legitimate medical reason for not getting fully vaccinated chooses to not get vaccinated, there will be consequences. Okay, as Trudeau speaking back in August there about mandatory vaccination, uh, saying there'll be consequences for federal workers who do not get vaccinated. Now, he talked about federally regulated workers as well. So this would be people who work in transportation, banks, telecommunications companies. And according to the original timeline, it's supposed to be in place by October 30th. I wonder if that's still on. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dan Balcara. And Dan is an employment lawyer with Sam Furu to Markin. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on today. You're welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dan, what is your understanding of the status of this? Like, when is this going to be implemented? Have they, Has the government even said? I, I have no update on that. I mean, it's, that's a political question, not a legal question. And, and it, it will move at sort of the speed with which the new minority government is able to uh, move that particular policy um, objective across the line. Yeah. What are the biggest challenges here, do you think, for, for implementing something like this? Well, I mean, there's there, there are two sort of challenges that I see. So number one, there's the political challenge. I mean, when Trudeau was talking, Mr. Trudeau was talking about consequences, um, you know, let's let's be real about what those consequences are. He's talking about uh, individuals who don't get the vaccine uh, losing their jobs, you know, not right. being able to pay for their mortgages, losing their homes. You know, if you have a child with special needs who needs 
you know, uh, therapy in order to live as healthy a life as possible. Well, too bad you don't get to pay for that. So, so there are going to be political wins that, that he's going to have to overcome. I mean, it's a bold politician indeed who will, um, who will say to people, listen, you, you, if you either get the vaccine or you're going to lose your job, you know, and, and, and there's a very real possibility, you know, where, where you've got uh, what 20% of the population not getting the vaccine that, that, you know, the more workers that are mandated, um, you know, who will lose their jobs if they don't get vaccines and they choose not to get the vaccines, you know, you could be creating overnight an, an instant economic underclass. So that there are political wins that that he has to navigate. And, and I think that those will be uh, a little bit more difficult than the mandatory vaccine passports that that sort of restrict non-essential um, liberties, we'll say. Uh, and then there's there's um, the legal hurdle. So Legally, Mr. Trudeau, under our federalist system, has the ability to regulate federally regulated employees. But but and, and you covered what those were. So that would be, you know, banking, aviation, that kind of thing, interprovincial right. trucking. But but he doesn't have any ability to regulate um, provincial employees. And, and, you know, that's 90 plus percent of, of all employees are provincially regulated. Uh, and so he'll have no ability to do that, barring some sort of you know, and I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so I can't really opine on this, but, but, you know, barring some sort of emergency measures provision that I'm not familiar with that would allow the Liberal government to, to try to institute something like that, he's going to have to work with the provinces, um, you know, I, I would suspect through a mixture of sort of carrot and stick, bribery and punishment to, to try to coax the provinces in order to, uh, you know, to, to implement some sort of mandatory vaccine. And, and of course, then the political consequences of those, um, mandatory uh, vaccines on employees would would then fall in those individual provincial governments. So, you know, quite often when the government doesn't have the ability to regulate the provincial space, you know, they'll offer more money or they'll take away funding to try to get to get some sort of objective across the line. And so that's what I imagine. But I just I just want to cover one more thing here. All of that is, you know, the implementation now. But that doesn't mean that that, you know, mandatory a mandatory vaccine policy uh, as as um, passed by you know the federal government or the provincial government, depending on on the jurisdiction, um, that doesn't mean it's going to ultimately be legal, right? Because all of these uh, all of these restrictions on your um, your basic liberties are, are going to be challenged. There are going to be charter challenges on them. They're going to go through the court system, and eventually they're going to go up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And it's not clear at all that the government, at least it's not clear to me anyway, that the government has the ability to restrict your, uh, in this case, liberty under Section 7 of the Charter, your right to life, liberty, and security of the person to the substantial degree that, that all of these things, all of these measures are doing. So, Right, no, it, 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 it's a really interesting tangled web of jurisdictions here of how this is going to work. And it's interesting that the Canadian press, the National News Agency of Canada this week has reported on some documents, federal documents that they received under the Freedom of Information Act, it says that possibly the feds could try to make COVID-19 vaccines mandatory across the country, even for provincially regulated workers under a national interest sort of override. Man, oh man, you're getting into some deep constitutional waters there. We'll see, we'll see what happens. What about right now, like as a labor lawyer, let's say your employer comes to you right now and says you're required to be vaccinated as, as, a, as a condition of your employment here. What rights do you have as a, an employee? Can you refuse yeah, that? Right. So, 
this is actually I, I, almost every phone call I, I, I take now is about this question. It's 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 the only question in employment law right now. Um, so does unless there is a a, uh, a mandate from the government that an employee in a certain sector get get vaccinated, the employer has no right, uh, likely has no right to to require. Uh, one of its employees or its employees to get vaccinated. But but let's look at the practical practical effects here. You work for ABC Company, and ABC Company, there's no mandate from the government. You're not a health worker. You don't work in long-term care homes. And ABC Company says, you have to get vaccinated or you lose your job. Well, it doesn't have the right to do that. No. But if you don't get vaccinated, you're going to lose your job, right? And so you have yeah. to assess right from the start of the And this is what I tell every everyone that I speak with. You need to assess what your objective is right from the start. If you're 53 years old, you're making $85,000 a year and you have no university education and you need to get to retirement at 65, you need to keep that job. Right. Yeah. And so you need to figure out some sort of amicable solution with your employer to see, you know, there are, some people are able to sort out some sort of amicable solution where there's a mandatory vaccine policy being pushed by the employer. But, you know, maybe it's a, a closely held corporation and there's less than 100 employees. And you say to an employer, listen, I, I've been here for 10 years. I have a great track record. I love it here. I want to I, I want to continue to do well. But I for X, Y and Z reasons, I can't get the vaccine. Um, can I maybe work from home or have social distancing or something for a, for a little bit? And I'll, I'll reevaluate the vaccine question, you know, in, in, in four months or in the new year or, or something like that. Um, yeah. and, and for a lot of people, you can. But but if you work for an, uh, you know, reach some sort of amicable solution. But if if you know you work for a larger employer, you know, with thousands of employees, uh, thousands of employees, there, there's probably going to be very little policy flexibility with respect to the right. mandatory vaccine. So you've got to you've got to realistically assess what your objectives are right from the outset. And just just to your point, when it comes to employment, and I'm not talking about labor, so I'm not talking about union side. I'm talking about non-unionized employees. You, you know, your employer can terminate your employment at any time for any reason, barring a human rights protected ground. That would be like your age, race, ethnicity, sexual, orienta- sexual orientation, a bunch of other sort of moral rights, disability, that kind of thing. So barring that, your employer can terminate your, only, your employment at any time. Your only legal right in the event of your termination is severance. I don't know if you know what I mean when I say yeah, severance, but, sure. but, but that's it. So you're, so you're talking about your rights all accrue uh, post or, or, or crystallize post-termination, and so for most of your listeners, that's not a good outcome. That's not a solution yeah. they want. Okay, so, so you lose your job. And here's the other thing that you have to think about when you're assessing this. You know, let's just say you're a personal trainer. You know, you've got 10 years in the tank at this, at this place, and all of a sudden, you know, because personal trainers work in gyms, by and large, the gym says, you know what, we're, we're terminating your employment, uh, or so you have to get the vaccine by X date, or we're terminating your employment. Right. Okay, so, so maybe you're, you're content with losing your job, and you call someone like me, and we go after, um, you know, we, we, we try to enforce your right to, you know, maximum severance. Right. Um, but you're, how do you get back into the workforce? Because every employer, especially uh, especially employers who have customers, you know, or, or employees sort of forced by the nature of the business and into a you know close proximity with each other, like a gym, uh, you know, they're all going to say under the new contracts they're going to have mandatory vaccine policies under their their employment contracts, and and yeah. and so how are you if you refuse to get the vaccine working at you know ABC gym, how are you going to get a new job at XYZ gym? Are you looking at sort of effective capital punishment of your career at that point. So, you know, there, wow. there's a lot to consider, and I would encourage everyone, a lot of people who I talk to on the phone about this, Mike, are, they're, they're very, understandably, they're very emotional about this. They, they think their, their rights are being to, 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 ass, 
assess their own medical health and medical decisions is, is being invaded. And they're very emotional and upset about it. But I would encourage everybody to, to try to remove, if, if you are in this uh, situation where you, you can't get the vaccine or won't get the vaccine and you're facing uh, a mandatory employer uh, a, a, a mandate for, to, to continue working, uh, to get vaccines, I, I, I would encourage everyone to, to remove the emotion if they can to the, their, best, their best ability and think strategically. What is your objective right from the start? And that's going to be informed to a great degree by your, your, your job mobility prospects, your age, can you work remotely, how close you are in retirement, and your financial position along with your health and everything else. Right. So think, think, think strategically about these things and make the best decision for you in the circumstances. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about mandatory vaccinations in BC workplaces. My guest is Dan Balcarin. He's an employment lawyer. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 in your cell. Ian and Burnaby. Hi, Ian. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Okay, my question is um, regarding the vaccine mandates and um, hours at work. I work in the HVAC industry and uh, we're hourly and basically our union has suggested that we get vaccinated the president of the union has said so the company has a mandate and out of 35 employees we have six that are non-vaccinated so i'm the shop steward and i'm trying to get information so now that so our customers dictate our workload for service calls maintenance and installations and my question is now um, most of the customers has, have put in um, policies stating that they want vaccinated only technicians to attend their sites. So seniority based or not now, these six employees are now getting decreased hours at work. Wow. And the union has stated that, you know, we're not going to be fired, but the company has also said we're not going to be put on EI. So some guys, you know, are missing. Okay, what's your, what's, your, what's, your, what's your question? Bottom line it there for me. Okay, my question is, with these decreased hours, is that an eligible EI claim, um, you know, due to not having the vaccine? Is Dan. that an eligible reason? Yeah. Dan, what do you yeah. think? Uh, I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I don't have a really good answer to give you on, on that one. I will say that you're, what you just explained where, where, you know, customers themselves are requiring people who come on site to be vaccinated, it sort of illustrates the, the predicament that employers are in because, you know, in, in the event that they terminate employees for not getting vaccines, they're going to have potentially, you know, huge severance um, uh, liabilities to, to fund. But at the same time, they, they need to they need to be seen to be uh, doing their best to keep their employees and, and customers safe. And, and it's a real business concern because they could lose customers. So uh, it's a tough predicament for employers, um, you know, at the moment due to due to sort of COVID and, and, okay. and the general uh, perspective on vaccines. With, with respect to your question, so number one, uh, given that thorny spot that you're in, uh, your union, so you're you're governed by a collective bargaining agreement. That's going to be, you know, essentially your contract for for all of you, and it's going to have the specifics of what your rights are and what your rights aren't. So you're going to have to talk to your union representative um, about. Um, you know, what it is that you can do in, in those situations. In terms of whether or not a reduction in your hours triggers uh, an EI claim, I mean, 
I, I yes, it might, and I, I would encourage you to call Service Canada and ask them because I can't okay. I cannot opine on on what Service Canada decides. So okay. call, call Service Canada. You're going to be on hold for an hour, but I would I would. <laughs> Tony in Vancouver. Hi, Tony. Hi there. So in the last year and a half, uh, I've been working from uh, home as a federal employee, and um, and uh, I'm just wondering, can they still enforce the vaccine mandate even if I'm working from home? Uh, second question is, how would the severance be paid out uh, in in that case if uh, if I choose not to get the vaccine? Dan, yeah. Um, so, uh, most of your history, have you been working from home, or or have you been working in the office until recently due to COVID? Tony, you still there? He's not. Yes, uh, last year and a half due to COVID. Yeah, so just got just got a minute I, left, Dan. Go ahead. Sure. So, so you don't have a right to work from home. So they could say at any point in time you have to come back to the office, and if you're not vaccinated under the specific health mandate that that uh, from from the federal government, they could they could let you go and not pay you any severance whatsoever. So you're in a tough legal position from that perspective. I think what you want in your situation is you want some sort of amicable solution, right? Because if you can, if your employer, if you can call your employer, say, listen, I'm not vaccinated. I can't get vaccinated for X, Y, and Z reasons. Can I continue to work from home? I love it here. I want to continue to stay here. That might be the, the best outcome for you. And in, in terms of what your severance is, um, you know, it would depend on what's in your employment contract and your, your age, your length of service and, and, and your position. Uh, but but mostly what what your what your legal position is pursuant to your employment contract. So we'd have to okay. do do a specific analysis, and I encourage you to call us if that's the case. Okay, Dan, we have more callers, but sadly we're out of time, so we'll just have to have you back on. Uh, as simple sure. as that. But if people want to contact you in the meantime, what's your website there? Uh, stlawyers.ca, uh, and so it's ask like Sam T like Tango Lawyers.ca. You can also Google okay. me. Uh, if you want to look me up, Dan, last name, Balcaran, B like Bravo, A-L-K-A-R-A-N. One more thing. Uh, my firm has put together a helpful website with respect to your rights under COVID, and it, we're constantly updating it. So it's called covidrights.ca. I encourage everyone who has these questions to go visit covidrights.ca. All right, let's talk about street crime in the city of Vancouver now, including escalating crime in some key neighborhoods, the West End, the Granville Business District, Vancouver Police reporting a wild and crazy weekend in Gastown with multiple break-ins, assaults, property damage, a stabbing in Gastown on the weekend. Also reported by Vancouver Police, a big increase in graffiti all over town. Have a listen to this, uh, Sergeant Steve Addison from the VPD. It's a big problem. Uh, we're seeing it in every neighborhood all over the city. Uh, it's not just in back lanes and on dumpsters anymore. We've just uh, announced the arrest and charges against two women who um, painted yellow paint on St. Jude's Parish on Canada Day on the west side. Uh, we've got the Komagata Maru Memorial. Uh, that was vandalized uh, last month. We're making significant progress in that investigation. Okay, it's uh, Sergeant Steve Addison there from the Vancouver Police Department. Let's discuss now with my guest, Vancouver City Councillor Lisa Dominato. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Councillor, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay, let's start with the problems on the ground right now as you see them. We've heard lots of reports about repeated break-ins, vandalism, assaults, this endless cycle of broken store windows and graffiti. How bad is it right now, in your opinion? Like, what are you hearing from residents of the city? Yeah, I, I'm hearing deep concerns uh, from residents and businesses, small businesses in particular. And 
definitely concentrated in the downtown core and neighborhoods around the downtown. And uh, there's obviously a level of frustration, but uh, there's a cost to small businesses, but also there's a social emotional cost for people. People are not feeling safe in their neighborhoods. And um, that's deeply troubling uh, for me as as a resident here of the city, but also as an elected councillor. Right. What about this graffiti report that we see in the headlines today? A large increase, 70% spike in nuisance graffiti, 311 calls. You know, I mean, people hear that and some people might think, well, that's terrible. And others might just roll their eyes and say, well, yeah, that's life in the big city. I mean, do you think it's a big problem? I do think it's a problem. Again, um, and you're absolutely right, we've seen a spike in graffiti, uh, definitely at the start of the pandemic, because downtown was like a ghost town. People weren't going to work, people weren't shopping, we were locked down. Um, but there has been a spike. We've seen it exacerbated in uh, areas like Chinatown, for instance, that's been uh, really hard hit. So that's why Councillor Fry and I brought a motion to help mitigate against graffiti, um, to uh, provide some additional dollars to our BIAs to combat it. But it is certainly uh, a problem. And it, the, the fundamental piece is that people may think it's nothing, but it's actually a cost to these businesses. And these businesses are, this is their livelihood. They're employing people in our city. Uh, and um, that's critical that we need to address that. All right, let's talk about a couple of specific neighborhoods of concern here. Vancouver police right now focused on Gastown, another wild and crazy weekend down there. We've seen a spike in violent crime and property crime since the spring. What are your thoughts and concerns in Gastown in particular? This is a historic neighborhood of the city. Yeah, I've actually heard from uh, residents and businesses down in the Gastown area, and they, they really feel that the neighborhood has changed over the last number of years. And they've expressed their concerns to me directly. I've heard from small business owners who largely employ women and that their women employees are feeling less safe, particularly if they're working late hours. And and that's partly why um, in an open letter that I penned with uh, my colleagues, Councillor Bly and Councillor Kirby Young, that we called for um, a greater police presence in affected neighborhoods because mm. it's it helps as a deterrent just having those eyes on the street and having um, additional resources deployed into these neighborhoods. Uh, but I know Gastown has been hit hard this year. Yeah, okay, so an increased police presence, you're talking about increasing the police budget? Well, you know, it's a good question. Um, I supported last year's budget as it was presented by the police uh, board. Um, and I think you'll probably recall from that vote, it wasn't supported. It was cut by about $6 million. I did not support that cut. At the time, VPD said that would mean they couldn't bring on 60 officers, 61 officers. Um, but I, I'll be looking to see what the police board uh, recommends this year. Um, but I certainly was disappointed in last year's vote when uh, a majority of council did vote to reduce the police budget. Right. Talking to Vancouver City Councillor Lisa D'Aminato about crime in Vancouver. We'll take a look at the West End. We've talked to a lot of West End business owners and residents on the show over the last couple of weeks about the, the endless cycle of broken windows there in the neighborhood, break-ins, vandalism. One thing that I've heard from store owners is they're worried about their insurance refusing to cover broken windows once the windows have been broken like three, four, five times, like it just never stops. You think there's a role for the city there? Like the city will help businesses with the cost of cleaning up graffiti. Do you think the city should pitch in to fix all these broken windows in the West End? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been following really closely uh, the current concerns of, of small businesses in that area. 
And insurance is a real issue. I've been a homeowner. I was broken into in my home in Victoria. And um, if you have more than one break-in, it does affect your ability to be insured, and it costs more to respond to it. Um, But I I would say one of the things that I thought uh, was a great suggestion by one of the business owners of Marquee Wines was the suggestion of these roll-down slats that you can put down to cover businesses um, at night. Uh, And I saw that when I was living in Europe as a way to protect uh, the windows in the business front. And I think that's something that we, we should be looking at as a measure to support small businesses in the area. Okay, I know the city has said that that goes against their policies there in those downtown neighborhoods. Uh, they think they look ugly. They could attract even more graffiti. They would prevent uh, light from spilling out of the store windows at night and maybe creating a safety issue. But you think they should be considered when the windows are being broken over and over again? I absolutely think they should be considered. And actually, when I saw that uh, response as it provided, uh, I think, to John Clarity's about um, the roll-down option, I actually went back to staff and I said, could you please give us an explanation as to what is the policy barrier here? Because I I actually think it's worthy of being looked at. And I know a couple of other councillors chimed in uh, on that, uh, saying, yes, they would like to better understand why our policy prevents this. And because I, I think if the windows are going to be broken repeatedly, it's a, again, it goes back to this is a cost for businesses, um, but there's also that broader social-emotional cost of people just not feeling safe. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the action you're calling for here. Your colleague on City Council, Melissa DiGenova, has moved a motion at Council calling for uh, some action by Council on, on this issue looking for a round table that would involve the business improvement associations, the police department, Vancouver coastal health housing to be invited here to, to a round table. Do you support that? And do you think it would make a difference? You know, I think there's a lot of merit in that dialogue and and it stems from my experience working provincially. Um, You may or may not recall that when I was working for the province, um, I was the head of a, uh, bullying and violence prevention for schools and um, at the time I was working there Amanda Todd committed suicide we now know that she was exploited but it traumatized the school community and so we decided that we need to bring together the school community and all the leaders uh, within that sector to talk about the issue of bullying and violence in our schools. I think that bringing together the community, the business community and residents and the other players like Vancouver Coastal Health, BC Housing uh, to the table and, and it having a constructive dialogue and VPD, of course, um, to look at um, what are the other options or solutions that we haven't considered um, because it's, it's a societal issue uh, and we need to be responsive. So I think there's merit in bringing the, these uh, groups together. Right. There's a lot of talk about police resources and you've already touched on that. And I agree with you. I think the decision to freeze the police budget was a bad one. And we're seeing the results of it now with some of the mayhem we're seeing in these neighborhoods. Beyond increased police presence, what else do you think should be a priority? Like, do we need more supportive housing services? Do we need drug addiction treatment? Do we need more mental health treatment? And can the city have a role in that? Yeah, absolutely. I've been calling for some time for... uh, a mental health and addictions task force. I had uh, brought a motion well over a year ago calling on the province to take the lead in bringing the feds to the table and the city and experts and to treat mental health and addictions um, issues just like we've dealt with the pandemic. With the pandemic, we said there's urgency. Um, different levels of government came together and acted with intention uh, to address the pandemic. 
we've had an opiate overdose crisis now for since it was declared in 2016, I believe. Uh, and I think we need to uh, really look at ramping up um, recovery options and pathways for people, but also complex care. And this is something that the urban mayors have been calling for. So we have supportive housing, but there are concerns that supportive housing um, isn't sufficient to meet the needs of some uh, individuals who have very complex issues and they have brain trauma uh, from injuries or repeated overdoses. And so the Urban Mayor's Task Force is calling for uh, complex care settings where you would have a higher level of care for those individuals. And, and I support that call for action. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on.